Bibles and turn to the book of 1 John, uh, chapter 3 again. And our uh, scripture text is verses 16 uh, through 18. However, since uh, there's some context here in 1 John 3 that I want you to be aware of, um, I want to read, um, starting in verse uh, 10, but our scripture text will be verses 16 through 18. That will be the actual sermon text. So 1 John 3, starting in verse 10, but the sermon text is just 16 uh, through 18. So 1 John 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. For this is the message, excuse me, for this is the message which we have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Here's the sermon text. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give us greater understanding, a greater grasp of your great love for us, so that that can translate into a greater love that we may have for our brothers. Lord, I pray that we would not be self-righteous or prideful, that we would not look at this text and, and say that we are good to go, that we would receive your word here, um, as, as, a, as a high calling, as a challenge, as one that we cannot do apart from your Holy Spirit empowering us to love. Lord, teach us to love. Teach us to be humble. Teach us to put others ahead of ourselves. Teach us to be like you. We pray that you would use your word this evening to make us more like Jesus in the way we love. And we ask this in his name. Amen. I remember when I was uh, a little boy, I was growing up outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in the, uh, in the early 2000s. And I remember seeing uh, many of the children around me wearing little bracelets, uh, which simply had four letters on them. Some of you know what I'm talking about. WWJD, standing for What Would Jesus Do? Um, the implication of that question, what would Jesus do, is that we as Christians ought to do uh, whatever Jesus would do uh, in a situation. Now, Christians began wearing those sorts of bracelets uh, somewhere in the 1990s, and that trend carried on into the early 2000s. It really became a movement, uh, the WWJD movement. Um, now, since then, there's been many criticisms uh, of that, of the WWJD thing. Um, the reason that people criticize it, that Christians criticize it, is they say if someone tries to reduce the Christian faith, if someone tries to take Christianity and boil it down to this question, what would Jesus do, then really what you've done is you've taken Christianity and made it a moralistic religion. That is a religion that's just about um, us trying to be better people, us just trying to uh, do, do good deeds, rather than focusing on the gospel of what Jesus has done. So he's saying you don't want to make Christianity a religion that focuses simply on mimicking Jesus, rather than focusing on the salvation that he has accomplished, that, that we receive by trusting in him as our Savior, as, as Jesus who has died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. So when it comes to the gospel and how we're saved, the central focus of Christianity, 
A better question is W-H-J-D, which is what has Jesus done? And the answer, of course, is what Jesus has done to save sinners. That's the gospel, which is summarized, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15. He, he died on the cross for our sins. He rose again. That's the thing Paul says is of first importance, what Jesus did to save his people from their sins. Now, that being said, however, does that mean that WWJD, what would Jesus do, is a bad question to ask? And the answer is definitely not. It's a very important question to ask. That question should not be used as a summary for Christianity. It's not a question that deals with how you're saved. It's not a question that deals with how somebody can get to heaven. However, what would Jesus do is a great question when it comes to our Christian life of service to God. You see, true Christians, those who have been born again, they've been given a new heart with new desires from God. And those desires that are new in the person who's born again are to obey God's commands and to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Those are desires that the Holy Spirit gives the people he makes born again, to obey God's commands, to love their brothers and sisters in Christ, that is, other Christians. This has been taught plainly in 1 John in various places. I just read to you 1 John 3.10, where he lays it out rather plainly, the distinction between a believer and unbeliever. He says, By this the children of God, on the one hand, and the children of the devil are obvious. He's saying, here's a clear distinction. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So they are both in one verse. Loving, doing what is righteous, loving the brothers, that's evidence of being born again. In, ver in verse 14 as well of this chapter, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. I don't think he can get clearer than that. So obeying God's commands and loving your brothers in Christ are two fruits of being born again. And those, those two fruits always go together, doing righteousness and loving the brothers. In fact, love, loving the brothers, is, is a summary of God's commandments. If you're disobeying God, if you're sinning, you're not loving. If you are loving, then you're obeying God. That's why Jesus said the two greatest commandments are what? Number one, love God. Number two, love your neighbor. The whole law and the prophets, he says. That is, all the moral teachings of the Old Testament are summed up in those two, loving God and loving neighbor. Love summarizes it, is it all. And Paul says the same thing in Galatians 5 and Romans 13. It's a summary of the commandments. So obedience to God and love go together. But here in 1 John 3, 16 to 18, in the sermon text this evening, John wants to take this, this issue of love uh, to another level, a level that's just unmistakable. He wants you to understand what obedience and what love really are all about. And what John is doing here is really exactly uh, what Jesus himself said in John 13, 34. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you, must, that you also love one another. So Jesus says, you must love one another as I have loved you. Now he calls it a new commandment. Now, it's the, the new part of it is not that you should love other people. That was there the whole time. That was there back in Leviticus. That's not what's new about it. What's new about this commandment is the clarity of the standard of love as well as the motivation to love one another. What Jesus is, is revealing to us is a, is a clearer understanding of what love looks like, a, a clearer standard of what love looks like, and also a new motivation for loving one another. We are to love one another as Jesus has loved us. And we're to, Jesus gives himself as the ultimate example of what it means to love people. So this makes the standard to know what love looks like even clearer, and it makes motiv our motivation to love the brothers much stronger. Think about it. The standard is this. We're to love others in the same way that Jesus loves people. There's the standard. We love like Jesus loves. And the motivation is this. We love others because Jesus has loved us. So Jesus' love for us is the motivation. 
So he is the standard and he is the motivation for our love. So first, our first point this evening, looking at Jesus as the standard for what it means to love somebody. Look at verse 16, 1 John 3, 16. True love illustrated by Jesus. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. He says, we know love by this. This is how we know what love is. The standard of what loving looks like is Jesus. That's how you know what love is. There's no other place to look to find the answer to what love is except to the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what it means to be loving, you have to look to Jesus. Now, you know as well as I do that the world, when it talks about love, has really got this messed up. It's really got this backwards, doesn't it? I mean, I mean here's a generalization, but it's a true one. What the world calls love isn't love, generally speaking. The world calls, for example, all sorts of sinful things love. And nothing evil is loving, as I said earlier. If God, has said, if God has said that something is evil or something is sinful, it's not loving to do that, period. True love is shown in the character of Jesus. But since the world does not know Jesus, they don't know what love is then either. You see that? Because they don't know Jesus, they don't know what love is because you know what love is by knowing Jesus. Now the world, you may know, some of them may claim to know Jesus, may even claim to love Jesus. They may praise or, or extol a person they call Jesus for his love. But if the Jesus, the quote-unquote Jesus that they're speaking of, affirms what is evil, then it's not the Jesus revealed in Scripture. You see, the real Jesus is revealed in the Bible. And you can learn all you need to know about who Jesus is by opening the Bible and learning from him about him. So I want you to get this. This is not... A message right now for the world though this is a message for you that just as the world does not understand what love is because it does not look to Jesus you as a Christian will not have a deep understanding of what love is unless you look to Jesus that's what John is saying here this is how we know what love is when he talks about Jesus so looking unto Jesus is the essential it's the non-negotiable first step you have to make if you want to be a more loving person. Now, what do I mean by look unto Jesus? Or what, is, what does that mean, practically speaking? Well, I'm going to highlight two things here. Looking unto Jesus first means expressing your dependence upon him to aid you to be like him, which means that you're going to be praying, in other words, dependent prayers, praying for his help to make you more like him. That's looking unto Jesus for help. In Hebrews 4.16, it says this, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He's saying you come to Jesus with confidence, knowing that he wants you to come to him, and he wants to give you grace and mercy to help you in your temptations and in your trials. That's the context. He is ready to help. So go to him with confidence. That's what he wants. You need, you need to learn dependence upon him. And that is part of looking unto Jesus to help you to be more loving. But what I also mean by looking unto Jesus is getting to know his character, getting to know him. And the way that you do that is by going to his word and seeing what he has revealed about himself to you. In Philippians 2.5, Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And here's the question. How can you have the same attitude of Jesus if you don't know what Jesus' attitude is? You have to know him in order to be like him. If you want to love like Jesus, you have to know how Jesus loves. So let's look at how Jesus loves them. He says, we know love by this. How? That he laid down his life for us. That's the ultimate way that Jesus demonstrated his love for us. You cannot love more than that. That's the ceiling of love. Jesus himself said, greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. You can't top that. You can't top what he did. 
Now, there's so much contained in this little phrase, he laid down his life for us. Let's just break it down. First, he laid down his life. He laid down. That is, it was voluntary. It was not coerced. It was not forced. He did it. It, it, Jesus was not nailed to the cross because the bad guys caught him. Jesus was nailed to the cross because he purposefully went there. He went to the cross on purpose. Well, why did he do that? To demonstrate his love for you and his love for the Father. Jesus himself said this before he was crucified in John 10. He says, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. He voluntarily laid down his life. Secondly, he laid down his life. You know, there's nothing more valuable to human beings than their own lives. Our lives are the very things that we most desperately want to protect and save, aren't they? But yet Jesus voluntarily gave his up. He purposefully laid down the most valuable thing that any human being possesses, his own life. And it says he laid down his life for us. See, he laid down his life. He, he laid it down on purpose. Yet he did this not for himself, but for us, his people. He sacrificed himself for us. Why? Again, because he loves us. Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. He died on the cross to take our place. He died, he died as a substitute for us, taking the wrath of God instead of us. He did this again, not out of coercion, but voluntarily, out of love for us and love for the Father. So now here's the kicker. So we get that, and that's summed up quickly. But here's the kicker of 1 John 3.16. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. Yeah, and he says, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. So he quickly gets us to the application here. The plain application that John draws from examining Jesus' love for us. A love that went so far as to lay down his life for us is that we're to do the same. We are to lay down our lives for the brothers, for other Christians in Christ. Now, of course, when John says that we should lay down our lives, he doesn't mean that we could in some way atone for the sins of our brothers. What he's saying is not that we would have the same effect from our laying down our lives, but that we would do the same thing, the same act, a self-sacrificial act of laying down our lives for the brothers. We are to lay down our lives as Jesus laid down his life for us in the sense that he was self-sacrificial for our benefit. So, of course, we cannot atone for each other's sins, but we can sacrifice ourselves for the sake of others. Now, I want to think about this phrase for a minute. That we had laid down our lives for the brethren. Now you think, okay, when he says we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, does he mean that we literally should lay down our lives for the brothers? And the answer is yes. Yes, he does mean that. There's really no other legitimate way to take this passage to exclude the possibility or the necessity of actually dying for the sake of Christian brothers. When you say, well, Jesus laid down his life, actually did, then we ought to as well. That certainly is in play here. If we're to love like Jesus, which is John's point in this verse, we cannot show greater love than by laying down our lives for our friends, our brothers in Christ. Now, I want you to think about the contrast here in this passage. In the greater context, which I read earlier, there's a contrast between Cain from Genesis, Cain and Abel, Cain and Jesus. They're contrasted here. Look at verse 11 and 12. It says, uh, they reference Cain here. It says, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. Okay, so we know the story. Cain killed Abel. He murdered Abel. But then he's contrasted with Jesus in verse 15 and 16. It says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, like Cain. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Then he goes right into our verse. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
One commentator said, in contrasting Cain and Jesus, he said, hate is negative, seeks the other person's harm, and leads to activity against him, even to the point of murder. Cain killed his brother Abel. Love, on the other hand, is positive, seeks the other person's good, and leads to activity for him, even to the point of self-sacrifice. You see the difference there? Hatred and love, the difference between murder and self-sacrifice? See, Cain is the example of the world in this text, the world that hates, that seeks other people's harms, that that goes so far as to murder them. And then Jesus is the example of love and how Christians are to behave. Jesus loves, he, he seeks our good, goes so far as to sacrifice himself for us, to give his life for us. For us. Again, contrasting Cain and Jesus, commentator says, a person's life is his most precious possession. Consequently, to rob him of it is the greatest sin we, we can commit against him while to give one's own life on his behalf is the greatest possible expression of love for him. Cain's hatred resulted in murder. Christ's love resulted in self-sacrifice. You see that difference? Love gives of oneself. Hate takes from others. Hate is that taking, stealing impulse. Love is the giving impulse. So to love is to give oneself in every righteous way, including to the point of death, as Jesus did. There's no greater love than that. Now, we're up here at at the ceiling of love. There's no greater love than to lay down your life. When would that be necessary, physically, to, to lay down your life for your Christian brothers? When would you have to die for your brothers? Now, John, first of all, is not saying that we should go out of our way to try to find a way to get ourselves killed for our brothers. That's not the point. What he is saying, though, is that we should be willing, when necessary, for the benefit of our brothers to die for them, if it is for their good. As awful as it is to think of, and I personally don't like thinking of it, and I'm sure you don't either, You can't imagine, I'm sure, certain situations, circumstances where this opportunity could arise to lay down your life for the brothers. We're well aware of the rise of shootings that go on in various places in this country and elsewhere. One Christian may have the opportunity to protect his brothers and sisters by risking his own life on their behalf. Or in another situation, a brother being persecuted, perhaps being beaten, mocked, arrested. What will we do? Will we shy away from association with that brother, pretending we don't know him, like Peter did to Jesus? You know, the Christians in the book of Hebrews, they were commended by the author of the book for sticking together in times of persecution. In Hebrews 10, 32, it says this, But remember the former days when, after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings. Listen, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those so treated. So he's saying some of you all were persecuted directly, made, made a mockery of, and some of you just stood by those who were made a mockery of. He says, For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Now, in those instances in the book of Hebrews, that did not result in the death of those Christians, but she better believe it could have. Being imprisoned, being made a public spectacle, they were prepared for that result, to even die for their brothers. Another possible scenario is that where Christians are meeting secretly due to persecution, due to gathering being illegal, If one Christian is captured and threatened with death unless he tells the authorities where the Christians are gathering, that Christian may lay down his life for the protection of his brothers. See, there are many kinds of scenarios where literally, physically, laying down our lives for our brothers may actually be the calling of love that God has for us. So we can see then, love as the fruit of the Spirit, that's no trifling thing. This is not a small thing. 
It requires love for the brother so far that you would even die for them. But as one commentator says, true love is revealed not only in that supreme sacrifice. It's expressed in all lesser givings as well. And that's where John takes us next in verse 17. He gives us an example of how to love. Verse 17, he says, But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? So what we have here is we have the ceiling of love and we have a real low-level floor level of love. He's saying there's no greater love than to die for your brothers. But then he gives us something so basic, so obvious. So even though the calling to love like Christ Go, would bring us to the point of dying for our brothers if necessary, you know as well as I do, those scenarios aren't coming up every day. So, so John brings us down to a level of real basic stuff here. This is practical love for the brothers. And this is so important. Some of us would claim to be willing to die for the brothers, right? We can, we can speak of acts of our own heroism as if it's nothing. I'll take a bullet for you all and all the stuff we can say about ourselves. But if we are unwilling to love when it comes to practical day-to-day things, well, our claims of our own love seem to fall short, don't they? I remember, uh, I remember Paul Washer talking about how he would talk to some young men and how they would speak of their own love for their wives. And they would say stuff like this. They'd say, for my wife, I would cross the swiftest rivers and climb the highest mountains and descend into the darkest caves and fight the wildest beasts because I love my wife so much. And they'd say, okay, that's great, but would you do the dishes for her? And they say, oh, no, 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 that's, that's a woman's work, you know? Most likely, we will not have to sacrifice our lives for the brothers in the church. But there are many lesser sacrifices that we need to give up day by day out of love for the brothers. So here's the scenario that John gives in verse 17. There's a Christian. Let's call him Bill. Okay, there's a Christian. Bill has the world's goods. That means that Bill is doing okay. He has enough for his family, enough for himself, and enough uh, to help those who are in need. Bill sees another Christian. Let's call him Jack. And Jack does not have the world's goods. Jack's in need. He's poor. Maybe he's lost his possessions by a disaster or by theft or some other scenario. Regardless, he's in need. His basic needs are not met. Jack is in need. So here's the scenario. Bill sees Jack and knows that Jack is in need. And Bill has enough to help Jack with his need. Here's the problem. Bill closes his heart against Jack. In other words, he shuts out his compassion for Jack. He ignores Jack's need. He does not help him. He does not give to him. This is very practical. Bill is not loving Jack. It's not that Bill is unable to help Jack. It's that he is unwilling to help Jack. And that's not love. It's not... It's not love to be unwilling to sacrifice for another. What Bill is doing is he's simply unwilling to sacrifice for his brother. So if Jesus loved us so much that he would give up his life, doesn't it follow then that we ought to be able to give up some of our material possessions for our brother's need? A much lesser sacrifice? This is so obvious. This is so obvious that John asked this question, how does the love of God abide in him? And Bill, how is the love of God abiding him when he won't even give to his brother who doesn't have his basic needs? How could he possibly love God, he says? <laughs> it's obvious he doesn't love Jack. It's so obvious, it's so painfully obvious he doesn't love Jack, that it's even in question whether he loves God at all. Bill's salvation is in question in this scenario because it's such a painfully obvious scenario your brother, your Christian brother is lacking. He doesn't have enough food to eat and you shut out your compassion for him. Where's the love there? Now, of course, a true Christian is not going to be loving at all times. You know that as well as I do. And a true Christian could potentially be selfish toward Jack. But that Christian being a true Christian would confess that as a sin, a self-centeredness and repent of that 
If we confess our sins, Jesus will forgive us. He's faithful and just to do so. For our lack of love, Jesus died for our lack of love as, as well. But the man who is obstinate in his lack of love, his life that's all about himself, self-seeking, self-absorption, of taking, not giving, of sacrificing others rather than sacrificing himself. John says, how can the love of God abide in that person? I mean, Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So how can someone claim to love Jesus and yet refuse to keep the commandment of Jesus to love the brothers? That's what John's saying here. Now again, as one, one author said, of course, we never do this perfectly. But to the extent that there's a reality of this kind of love in our lives, there'll be a compelling testimony to the love of Christ. James, in the book of James, argues a very similar point that John argues here. He says in James 2, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? You see the scenario? Somebody, your, your Christian brother comes to your door having not enough clothing to keep themselves warm, not enough food to survive, and you say, I hope things go well for you, slam the door in their face. Where's the love there? He says, how can you say that you have faith in Jesus when you act that way? And John says, similarly, how can you say that you love God when you act that way? When you will not help your brother with his basic needs. So John here has hit the two extremes of love. He's hit the ceiling and the floor. It, it's the ceiling is there's no greater love than to die for the brothers. Then he gives us this real basic thing. Your Christian brother doesn't have enough to live, and you're going to help him if you love him. Now, of course, what he's showing us here is that you have the ceiling, you have the floor, and every other opportunity of self-sacrifice for the benefit of your brother in between is required of you as well. Every, everything between the floor and the ceiling of love, you must give for them. Whatever is required, you give your all for them. That's the idea of laying down your life. It's not simply, I'll take a bullet for you. It's everything up to and including that from the floor to the ceiling. You're giving all of you for them, whatever is required. Now, all of this is great. You have, you have the, the no greater love than laying down your life. You provide for your, your brother's needs at the floor level there. That's all fine and dandy in theory. But what might it look like on a practical level to love the brothers? So our third point is loving in truth. Look at verse 18 where he really hits us between the eyes. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed in truth. Now John, as usual, according to his practice of pastoral kindness, calls these Christians little children. He does that many times in this book. And that's really his way of, of kind of stooping down, putting his arms around them and being fatherly towards them when he gives them a really hard challenge here. It's like a fatherly hug. He's calling us to a, a serious high calling but at the same time he himself is being an example of sweetness and kindness as he encourages us to love so john's call to himself he says let us his call to himself and to us is this don't just claim to be loving prove it with your actions don't just love in word or in tongue don't just make empty insincere claims to be loving because what good is that? It's not really loving. See, true love shows itself in action, in deed. And that shows that our love is genuine, sincere. Loving in deed and in truth means that you're showing your love by the way you treat and act toward others. Not simply by saying that you love others. Because love is an action word. It's shown by what we do. That includes how you think. That includes how you speak, how you act. But being loving is not as simple as saying that we are loving. Loving somebody is not as simple as saying, I love you. Jesus did not simply say, yeah, I'll die for them. He actually did die for them, for us. You know, in the book of Proverbs, you have this really convicting verse, Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, 
but the faithful man who can find. You see his point? Everybody thinks they're loving. Oh, I'm very loving. I don't hate people. I'm very nice. I try to be very kind to everybody. But he says, yeah, everybody says that, but who can really find somebody like that? A faithful man who can find. Where can you find a genuinely loving person? It's actually quite difficult. It's not easy to come by. Loving the way that Jesus loves is unnatural. See, true love is shown by actual evidence of, of love in the way that we think, speak, and act towards our brothers. So let's, let's apply this. What are some practical ways we can demonstrate Christ-like love? Now, of course, we're called to love all people, we're told in Scripture. But since John's addressing love for the brothers, we're going to focus on that. So how can we love Christians? Let's focus in on that. All right, number one. This is really important. Loving particular people. That's number one. You've got to start here. If you're going to be loving towards people, you have to love particular people. What do I mean? It's easy for us to say, I love the church, or I love the brothers, this faceless, nameless group of people. But if we're going to be genuine in our love, we're going to get real practical with it. We're going to love real people, actual people, people that we see face to face, that we interact with in our lives. One commentator had this great insight. Listen to this great quote. He says, It's easier to be enthusiastic about humanity with a capital H than it is to love individual men and women. Listen, especially those who are uninteresting, exasperating, depraved, or otherwise unattractive. Listen, loving everybody in general may be an excuse for loving nobody in particular. We have to start there. If you're going to be loving, who are you loving? People? Humanity? The church? Or, no, these, these people. Let me give you your, their names. Who are you loving? Ask yourself that. Okay, get sec secondly, application. Being Christ-like in our love. Loving people who are difficult to love. Loving people who are difficult to love. Do we love Christians when they are sinning? Or do we only love them when they're treating us and others well? Do we love them when they are annoying us? Do we love them when we feel like maybe they're, they're bringing a bad name upon Jesus? So therefore it justifies me not to treat them well. Do we love them still? You know, when you think of Jesus' love, we often rightly call it unconditional love, don't we? Unconditional love. That's right on. That's true. But what does that mean? It means that Jesus' love is not dependent upon whether or not we meet certain conditions. He doesn't love us if we're good enough. He loves us despite our failures, our weakness. And he doesn't stop loving us when we fall flat on our face. When we're being selfish, when we're being unloving, he doesn't stop loving us. One author said, Just as Jesus did, we are to love without regard for the righteousness or goodness of those we seek to love. We are to love whether people love us or not. This kind of love is the mark of the Christian, Jesus teaches us. See, this sort of love that loves people regardless of how they act, that's a distinguishing mark of Christ-like love. And that, that, for me, and it may be the same for you, that feels shocking. It feels shocking, but you know what? Jesus taught it as plain as day, and you know the passage. You know it. Luke 6, 32, he says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Big deal, Jesus says. You love those who love you? Yeah, okay. So what? For even sinners love those who love them. It says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. 
and your reward will be great, and you'll be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. You see that? Christ-like love is self-sacrificing, it's self-giving, and it does not respect anything in return. True love gives and gives and gives and gives and doesn't require anything back. Listen to this. this. This author gives us a bunch of applications to consider. Are we to love only our submissive children and reject those who are rebellious? This is not how Jesus has loved us. Are we only to love our children when they are obedient or good and have nothing to do with them when they're disobedient and unloving to us? This is not the way that Jesus loves us. See, every believer knows that Christ is full of patience, kindness, forbearance, forgiveness, and grace toward us over and over again. We are all cold-hearted, slow to love him, reluctant to obey him, unwilling to change, struggling to obey, and yet he continues to love us. This is how he calls us to treat our own children, our spouses, and other people in our homes, in our churches, in our workplaces, and out in the world. This is the new commandment of Christ-like love that's to govern our lives. End quote. So loving people who are difficult to love. I just want to say, just breaking here for a second. If you are, are put in a situation where you're having conflict with people, if you, are, if you are married and you're having conflict with your spouse, what is the purpose of your marriage? What's the, really the purpose of everything that God puts you through in life is to make you more like Jesus, right? To conform you to the image of his son. But here's the kicker. How are you supposed to learn unconditional love if everybody in your life meets all the conditions for you to love them? How are you supposed to learn unconditional love if your spouse meets all of your needs and your children are perfect? How can you love people who unconditionally when they meet all your conditions? See, God will put, he does, he, because this is how we all are, we're all sinners, None of us meet the conditions that others want. So I'm going to have to love you unconditionally and vice versa because I don't meet your conditions and you don't meet mine, which are treat me perfectly all the time. Right? If we're going to learn to be like Jesus, we're going to be challenged to love unconditionally because God will put sinners just like you in your life. Thirdly, another application of loving like Christ is loving the neglected. In James chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and Father, our God and Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is an essential part of Christ-like love as well. An essential part of the Christian religion, in fact, James says. It's we need to love those who are most often neglected by others. You know, some people groups uh, in the church um, especially need to be focused on with love and with care because they may be ones that are easily overlooked or neglected. James gives us, for example, widows, widows in the church. For example, you could invite them for dinner. You can invite them to your Thanksgiving dinner or to your birthday parties or to your family events to keep them included, to help them with their loneliness. Likewise, with single people in the church. Maybe people who are uh, from out of town or who don't have family or a lot of friends in the, in the area. Inviting them in, inviting them over often. Make them feel wanted. Make them feel like a part of your family. Single parent families. Caring for their needs, helping them with Things like diapers or toys or whatever. Things like that. Helping people who you may not think about. I wonder what struggles they have because of the situation that they're in. They may be often be overlooked and neglected, but need love. Additionally, Jesus tells us to look out and love those who are neglected by the world. You know, he says, for example, when you're inviting people to your party, to your banquet, 
He says in Luke 14, when you give a reception, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you for you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So he's saying, do not be ashamed to associate with people that the world finds uncomfortable. You know this, that God does not save people of certain status only. He does not save people of certain health only. He saves people who are, who are poor. He saves people who are disabled. And because that you, you, you will have such, such Christians that you know that you should especially show love to as they may be neglected and avoided by the world. Jesus did not neglect and avoid such people. You remember, he touched the man with leprosy. He interacted with the poor. And we should imitate him in that as well. Fourthly, the practical way of love, giving, uh, giving, giving, giving. It's, it's, we've already seen the example of, of giving out of our material possessions but what are some other things or ways that we can give to a brother? And I think one of the most practical ways that we can do that is to give of our time to our brothers. Because giving of our time is of vital importance. Uh, if you don't give your time to your Christian brothers, you'll never love them. You'll never be able to love them. Uh, to talk with them, to share a meal with them, to play a game with them, to take a walk with them. Those are all ways you can give time to love your brothers. You know, for example, loving one another includes helping each other bear each other's burdens and problems. You know, the saying goes, a burden shared is a burdened haft. Bearing each other's burdens, speaking with each other, helping each other. Just simply spending time with someone may help them with their loneliness. Inviting someone into your home for a meal can help them with feeling unwanted. Giving good advice can help them solve a problem, make them feel loved. How can you give good advice if you don't talk to them? Teaching them to do something can help them accomplish something in their life. See, Christ-like love just involves giving and giving and giving of oneself, including your time. In other words, Christ-like love means counting others more important than yourself. And that's the mind of Jesus. That's the attitude of Jesus that Paul brings up in Philippians 2, 3 to 5. He says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. You see, Jesus counted us more important than himself, and that instead of saving his own skin, he laid down his life for you. He laid it down. He did not save his own life, but gave it up so that you may have life. And John says we have, must be willing to do the same. In the small things, and in the big things, and in the medium things, in all things, we should lay down our lives for the brothers if we're going to be loving them in a Christ-like way. So just in closing here as we draw it to a conclusion. That's what Christ-like love is, is giving, self-sacrificial, counting others more important than yourself. But if you're like me, how can you do this? How can you possibly be this way, knowing our own hearts that are self-absorbed, self-centered, and self-preserving? And the great motivation for loving unselfishly and unconditionally is looking into the love of Jesus that he has for you. Think about it. The more you understand and believe in Jesus' love for you, the more his love will flow out of you into loving the brothers. See, that's John's point, isn't it? This is how we know what love is. He laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He's saying, look at Jesus' love. That is what will teach you and motivate you to love the brothers. Uh, Joel Beakey sums up our motivation for Christ-like love when he says this. He says, We love God because he first loved us. God does not ask us to manufacture love. Rather, he tells us that we will only love as we should 
when we know how we have been loved from all eternity by a triune God. When the wonder of the love that God gave up heaven's glory for rebellious, hell-deserving sinners breaks into your hearts and minds, then true love for God and his people will grow in you. Listen to this. Ultimately, the cross is the answer to everything. When we come back to the cross of Christ, we realize how much God has loved us. We find love at the cross, which we then extend to others. End quote. So Jesus is our great standard of what love is, and his love for you individually is your great motivation to love like him. So the question, what would Jesus do, is answered by the question, what has Jesus done? He has laid down his life for us. And therefore, as John says, we should also lay down our lives for the brothers. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we confess that we do not do this well. We are self-centered people, self-preserving people, and we only love people who love us back most often. Lord, I pray as we consider these things, as we consider your love for us, that we were not deserving of it. We were not worthy of it. We are not worthy of it. And although we sin against you, your love does not diminish. Your love is constant. And you love us in all circumstances. Lord, help us to meditate on that, to know that, so that when we think about others, we would extend that same kind of love, no matter what it costs us, that we would benefit others at our own expense rather than benefit ourselves at the expense of others. Help us to be self-sacrificial for the good of others, to lay down our lives, our feelings, our rights, just like Jesus did for us. He laid down his rights for our benefit. Give us wisdom, Lord. Give us love in our hearts that we may extend this unnatural love to others because you have first loved us. We pray for forgiveness and we know that we have it because of your great love. So I pray that we could love you better and be more thankful to you by demonstrating your love uh, to others. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.